Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on when you are listening to us. And thank you for being in the Material Business Podcast. And my name is Monica Hernandez, and I am your host with Infinity Growth. Today, I had a, I have a super special guest, David Lanton. And, and this, is a, this is a theme that really gets to my heart because my mom has a hip replaced uh, surgery in the past. So we're going to talk a lot about all those fantastic things that David does. Thank you, David, for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So David is the director of Explant Lab. It's a highly accomplished bioengineer and a surgeon as well, uh, with a background in medicine and a PhD in bioengineering. He leads the charge in utilizing advanced technology to understand the performance of medical implants, ensuring patients safely, and enhancing future device efficacy. Explant Lab is an orthogenomic, I hope I pronounced that correctly, biotechnology company. Is the largest independent orthopedic retrieval company in the UK and the provider of explant analysis to the National Health Services in the United Kingdom. Explant Lab have recently launched Orthotype, a machine learning algorithm which, which uses DNA genotype to determine patients' risk of developing an adverse immune response to joint replacement. Thank you so much for being here once again, David. And this is uh, very in line with what we have been discussing in the last podcast, where design plays a huge role in the lifespan of the assets. But here is so much so because we are talking about human lives. So can you tell us, it is very intriguing, the mission of Explant Lab. Can you tell us a little bit about what is it? And, you know, in your words, how do you say all that, all that is, is get to come, like what do you guys focus on? Yeah, so um, I guess the uh, best way to describe it would be to how, how the company came into being. Um, so uh, it's around about 15 years ago, um, I was a junior orthopedic surgeon and I joined a hospital in the northeast of England and uh, my job was to take a one-year research job um, to look at patients who'd received a new type of hip replacement, a hip resurfacing. It's kind of like a modification of the, the joint that the tennis player Andy Murray has. So it was intended for young people, allow them to be extremely mobile, return to great physical activity following the operation. Um, my job was basically to come in there and review the patients and say everything was great and publicize that implant you know national presentations but the problem was that the patients weren't actually doing so well particularly women they were coming back with unusual new symptoms like groin pain pain on straight leg graze and uh, when they were taken back to the operating theater and the we explored the joint there was an unusual you know cystic formation some pus formation around the joint which looked like it was infected Long story short, that actually turned out to be an uh, allergic response to cobalt chrome debris. When we removed the hips themselves, the actual metallic components, um, we wanted the manufacturer to have a look at them 
So we gave them to them. And, but the report that they gave us back was kind of implying that there was nothing wrong with the materials. It was all surgical error. So after we gave them sort of three or four we, and we kept getting the same responses, we started to realize, well, you know, we're going to have to look at this ourselves. So I linked up with the local university, it's Newcastle University, um, with a, a professor there called Tom Joyce. And we set about actually developing our own techniques so that we could analyze the joints ourselves. And um, this basically, you know, one year turned into, you know, the, the originally intended one year degree turned into me just basically going into research full time and then uh, developing this company. The reason being was there was just no places to have these medical implants independently looked at. They just the places didn't exist. Um, so we kind of set about basically making sure that that there was a service for uh, patients, doctors to have their joints looked at. So. The basics that we actually, uh, the basic technology that we use, it's not basic technology, which should, I should say the, the fundamental technology we use is coordinate measure machines, so CMMs, which are generally used for automobile and aerospace, as, as, as your listeners will know. And we adapted those to program them, them to scan the implants. So we basically reverse engineer the prostheses, work out where the material should have been when it came out of the factory, where is it now? And that allows us to calculate basically how much material or where has been deposited into the patient. So as the years went by, we've tried to automate the CMM so that they can multitask and do multiple hips and knees at the same time, reduce labor costs. So then we then approached the NHS um, to see if we could actually offer this as a service for the National Health Service. And so now we provide that at a national level for, for the UK. Well, that's a great accomplishment. And it's really interesting, some of the things that you have said, because in industry, like in a water plant, in a nuclear plant, in oil and gas, those deposits get, you know, the, the deposit gets sometimes accumulated in the bottom of the pipe or something downstream. But here we're talking about humans. So it is, for that reason, it, it strokes me. Uh, a little bit, a lot, <laughs> to know all that. So what are some of the really good, you're able to reconstruct the original form, and then are you able to categorize all those mechanisms? So is that corrosion, is that erosion, is where is what happened? Yeah, so it's, it, the primary thing that we do, what we're really focused on, is how much has come off, how much material has been deposited, irrespective of the mechanism, how much has actually been deposited into the patient, because that then is going to determine the really critical element, which is the cellular response. Because the reasons why joint replacements don't last forever, um, although they do, it's, so it's, it's, you know, it's a race against time between the life of the joint versus the life of the patient. If the patient's 95, the joint generally only has to last, you know, less than 10 years, you're pretty assured that that's a success. If the patient is 50 years old, that joint's going to be around for a long time. So you have to try and reduce the wear debris that the patient ex is exposed to. And the reason why you have to do that is that joints don't actually generally fail in the long term for mechanical reasons. 
they actually fail through the body's immune system becoming immunized to the wear debris. And then the patient's immune cells go after the particles that are released from the implant. And that is very material dependent, size of the particle, number of the particle, total volume. Then you've got patient characteristics uh, that are immune, you know, genetically determined. And then there's age and sex links there as well, which modulate the immune response. So it's our job to really try and go in there and stage one is categorize, quantify how much material has this patient been exposed to. The second thing that you can then do is look at the cellular response. For example, if you have metallic debris, you can get you you what can generally happen is you can get a T cell response to, to metal debris. So it's actually acting as if it's a, a virus. And the immune responses in there can be really, really damaging. It can be really destructive. Whereas if you have uh, polyethylene plastic wear, generally the responses, even though the, the total wear volume is a lot higher than with metal, the wear responses can be less, less aggressive. They're a bit slow burn. You know, they can take years and years and they're predictable before the bone starts to become damaged. And what actually happens in that situation, when the bone becomes damaged, it kind of dissolves around the implant and the implant comes loose. So that's actually the long-term endpoint of the joints that we're trying to avoid. So you can try and avoid that by reducing the overall wear exposure or making the materials different so they're less immunogenic. But it all comes back to learning, learning, learning. What's mm. failed, what's done well, how much can the body tolerate? What are the immunogenic genetic characteristics? Um, really in orthopedics though, we're very much focused largely on reducing the overall wear. So it's very materials focused, if anything. And it's only recently that we're going more into the, the, the genetic areas. Um, but yeah, in terms of your corrosion and your wear, obviously very complicated interaction. Nothing purely wears, nothing purely corrodes, particularly in the body. You've got the aggressive, um, you know, the, the, the biological environment further mm -hmm. complicates things. You've got molecules like albumin in there, which will actually help towards reducing corrosion and, and balancing the acid base out. Um, and as an example, we what we have learned is that mixed mo mixed metal modular junctions, particularly in orthopedics, there really are some things to be very much avoided, if at all, unless they're extremely well produced and the materials stay very well fixed. Having a mixed metal combination in a joint replacement in the body really produces some really nasty stuff that the body does not like, particularly with um, cobalt chrome when it's mated to titanium. That's a common that's a common junction which can produce quite nasty reactions. Wow. So all that is super uh, interesting. And then the, the, the thing that I'm thinking rate like put in my head is we are learning from the explant. So after we have taken them out of the body. Is there something we can do, like in, in our case, in a refinery, I will go with my ultrasound or my x-ray or uh, some in, some probe, or I can measure velocity, I can measure uh, pH, and then I can try to determine 
what's the status of my system? Is this something similar, I'm guessing, with uh, the, when the patient has had that a replacement? Yes, yeah, so um, what you can do, like in terms of looking at the joint performance while it's still in situ, i.e. still in vivo, so obviously we don't want to pull out the joint oh it's doing okay let's put it back in you know that's not yeah. going to be a, an option what you can do is uh particularly with the metals like cobalt chrome is is the really well commonly used alloy it's in in term it's used in almost every knee replacement that goes in the body now we learned over the last 15 years that with metal on metal hips so a metal on metal hip is a metal head a cobalt chrome head a ball against the cobalt chrome socket or cup. That's where the term metal on metal comes from. We learned that the volumetric wear rate released from the metallic surfaces correlates at like 90% to the cobalt and chromium levels in a patient's bloodstream. So you can take a, a blood level of cobalt and chromium and you can, you can basically say that this implant is wearing out roughly three millimeters cube per year it's that accurate it's phenomenally accurate so you've actually got really really good ways surrogate measures of, of actually measuring implant performance you can do it with titanium as well with titanium stems um, or titanium components now here's the really interesting thing which is really really strange and it's just one of those unexplainable things that just happens in a culture and kind of isn't really questioned Metal on metal hips kind of not they're not commonly used now because the cobalt chrome debris could in some cases be excessive and cause really nasty reactions. So the hip surgeons moved away from cobalt chrome and, and tending towards using more ceramic combinations with polyethylene now. The knee surgeons uh, don't actually believe cobalt chrome is a problem at all. And they don't even measure cobalt chromium levels in the blood. I mean, I've done many polls on this and knee surgeons do not measure blood metal ion levels because they don't think hardly any cobalt chrome is shed from a knee. But all the evidence recently which is coming out is actually showing that actually the cobalt chrome release is higher than we thought. The reason why they haven't thought it's a big problem is that you have a, a plastic sandwich, a polyethylene sandwich in between the metallic components. But what seems to be happening is that the manufacturers have tried to improve the wear characteristics of the polyethylene. But now that polyethylene might be more resistant to wear, but now we might be shedding more metallic debris in place of the polyethylene. Mm -hmm. It's one of those classic situations of you try and fix one thing, but it's a link in a chain, you might have consequences upstream or downstream. So we're in that really strange situation where we can measure cobalt chromium level. We do know that cobalt chromium levels are linked to patient pain and to outcomes, but knee surgeons just don't take them. It's really strange, whereas hip surgeons do take them. And the weirder thing still is, all the hip surgeons and knee surgeons and knee surgeons and hip surgeons, but it's like you you wear a different hat when you go in to do a knee surgery as you, as you do the hip surgery. It's, it's sort of a strange situation we're in right now. Wow. So if there is 
anyone listening and in your families, in your friends, you have knee surgeons, make them listen to this because it is really something like that we have the evidence for what we are saying. And then there is still some uh, part of ourselves that denies it, although we are seeing it. And then we say we don't we don't want to measure. And it's just measurements. We are not talking about going back again, like you said before, and reopening the patient and taking up the implant. Oh, it's good. Let's put it back. It's just a measurement that can definitely. And we from industry do it all the time. Like we rely in, we rely a lot on measurements, like many different measurements, but measurements gives us sight to see what we can uh, expect. So, wow, this is incredible. When we spoke before, you mentioned also that one of the other kind of uh, rocks in the road or, or roadblocks is sometimes you don't get those explants. They don't get to your hands, which is extremely sad because it, and again, in industry, sometimes it happens, right? Uh, money or whatever gets in the, in the way of knowledge. And then sometimes we open a piece of equipment and, but we need to put it back together in production and we don't get the chance to understand really the cost. Uh, or or taking the time to see what happens because we need a piece and it takes time and we don't get the approvals, whatever. In your case, I would have not never thought what you told me. So what is that other roadblock that you are facing? Yeah, it's, it, I mean, they, they really, really frustrating. I mean, I, I've been doing this so, so long that it's not even like a it used to be a real source of frustration. I used to get really mad about this, but it's just the way things are. Not over 99% of implants that are removed go directly into the bin. They go into the bin. There's no there's no learning from any of this. And it's not about picking up on mistakes. It's about picking up on variables that are associated with success. You know, the implant might have lasted 40 years. It's still useful to look at because you know that mm -hmm. that's done well. You can learn so much, but you can only learn as much as the data that you, as the data that you generate, and that is limited by your number of samples. So just the more samples, the better. Now, what some people might say is logistically, it's too complicated. It's too expensive to look at implants. The people who say that are the people who've never actually asked about the cost of doing this. You know, they, they, they just make assumptions. But the way you can set up CMMs, the way you can set up cleaning, uh, you can do this in big numbers really, really cost effectively, actually. Really quickly as well. You know, if a knee comes in, hip comes in uh, 12 noon, you could have a report in the medical notes by the next day, you know. Um, so it can be done. Uh, in the UK, we had a parliamentary investigation into this in about 2013. They said, yeah, it's very useful, but the cost will be too high. It'll be too complicated. They never asked us how, how expensive it would be or how complicated it would be. Now, now that the NHS is fully on board, um, it should make things easier. But actually, in practice, it's not. It's purely, I don't know what it is. I don't know whether surgeons don't believe in it or whether they just tired after operations or whether they're not aware of the service um 
it's just not it's it slowly maybe there's there's um there's more people are listening maybe but it's slow and right now like i say i would say we get one percent one percent of the implants that come out and it it really is as simple as you know you've got a slight fault with your iphone let's just throw it in the bin or you've got a plane crash let's just sweep up the debris and not bother looking at it you know mm -hmm. and the costs involved in failed implants are absolutely staggering it's not just the cost of the surgery it's not just cost of the implants it's the impact on the patient they were generally going to have a le far less successful um, uh, outcome after the revision the repeat surgery there's impact on the government because patients won't go back to work um, loss of tax there's impact on the patient's uh, social circle there's impact on taking up theater time for primary revision so that means patients walking around with arthritis are backlogged because we're dealing with the failed implants and um, you know the costs of this are actually forecast to well the numbers of revision and primary joints are forecast to double over the next 20 years so there are there are papers that are actually in the title um quite explicitly say this will basically cripple healthcare economies um over the next years in in the uk for example you know 10 percent of patient 10 percent of people in their lifetime will require a joint replacement so it may feel like this is a bit of a niche area but you, you realize it's really not as patients get older um, and they get heavier this is going to be a bigger and bigger problem and because we're not you know humans aren't reproducing as much as they used to it means we've got older older generations who, who will need help and there won't be so many young people to, to bear that burden for sure. I mean, it is it is definitely something that touches society in general. And uh, I, I told you, I, my mom had a hip replaced. And I have plenty of friends that are at that stage of their lives that they, they need uh, a joint replaced, either a knee or whatever it is. So definitely, we need to be on the on the conservative side and then thinking on the sustainability of these materials for the sustainability of the society because like you will said it it's going to be a time where people are going to be aging they're going to have replacements and then the more uh, understanding that we have about the subject we can bring that back into the design stage and then create that opportunity for success instead of cutting up last minute when things have already failed and then burden the social system, the, you know, the, like you said, the economy, the, the work, the, everything, taxes and all that with something that could have been prevented. So it is absolutely important that we have these discussions. And uh, I thank you very much for being you know up front and and coming in here and sharing with uh, everyone that this is uh this is an area for potential more investigation because that is in the uk but are you aware of something like this existing elsewhere um the retrieval service there's there's only um in we have good friends in australia uh, so in the, in one large state in the western state of australia that there's a government 
backed unit there and they've been around for ages you know and they're great um and other than that there there are some uh, some units i believe in norway that are independently funded but in general um implants aren't properly looked at but if they are the findings are kept in-house with the manufacturer which is great for the manufacturer but not so great for the wider audience um but one thing i did want to say as well just to emphasize is is that joint replacements are incredibly incredibly successful so we're not talking about fixing here massive problems what we're tr what we're doing here is trying to polish off Mm -hmm. make incremental change incremental step improvements you know so for example joints fail a lot le less than they used to sort of 30 years ago but the problem is patients are getting living longer so maybe the technology has to improve a lot you know along with patient demands but also there's other improvements like for example with knees it, it depends on which literature you read or <laughs> which surgeons you speak to but there is a consistent figure of about 10 to 20 percent of knee replacement patients who have chronic pain following the surgery not so that it's a terrible result but it's certainly something that could be improved mm -hmm. and what we're trying to do in orthopedics right now is is a lot of the, the the attention is focused on robotic surgery to improve alignment unfortunately the the, the evidence to say that this is improving outcomes is is really it's equivocal i think that would probably be the best way to describe it we're very much more down the immune response field to see if we can investigate and improve things in in that area see if those patients are actually responding if they need different materials you know if they're actually predisposed or rather more vulnerable to developing inflammatory responses for sure is there something we can do upstream like is there like um Everything that you have said, I'm just trying to relate to the word that I know, which is just industrial, right? So when we are selecting, let's say, for example, a coating uh, for a, a, a vessel, then we'll go and do tests and see with that, the same kind of same, but similar conditions, what can happen to that coating. Uh, we can... Uh, simulate conditions that are upset conditions, so really high, really low, more vibration, more heat. Is this something that we are doing uh, in this area, like we simulate? But I guess the variables are very many because everyone's blood, like even like my blood, uh, it's AB positive, and I know I, I'm rare because it's not a lot of people that have them, but. So depending on on many variables, is that something that? Yeah, so it's a it's a really good question. So I mean, the technology is improving all the time, um, but there are simulator studies. So hip, we have hip and knee simulators now. You only know the deficiencies or the strength in these things as you progress. So basically, with hip simulators, <laughs> with metal on metal, for example, uh, where the hip simulator is continuously cycling. You know, so it's it's simulating a patient doing normal walking, for example, continuous. Now, the issue with that is you get through a huge amount of data over, say, six months, several million gait cycles. The problem with that is that continuous movement is not actually what happens in the body. Obviously, you stop, you start, you sit, you lie down. 
And what was happening, we realized with metal on metal was that was given an artificial in, uh, environment because the more you, you cycle the metal on metal joint, it actually sucks in a lubricating fluid, which is lost when the patient becomes static again. So through a process of learning over the last few years, we then knew that, hang on, these joints aren't wearing in vivo like they are wearing in the simulator. It needs stop start, it needs running, jumping, you name it. So there are extensive tests that are done before the joints are released, but the problem is, is that the joints themselves are, again, there are multiple links in the overall chain of the body. So what I mean by that is you can test the bearing, you know, and just isolate the bearing. Is the bearing going to wear? But actually in vivo, the bearing is attached either by a Morse taper or by a press fit connection to another metallic component or implanted into the body. So all these different factors, you know, when you try and model it, you have to, there's, there's so many things that we know about it you know, we know of those variables and there's other variables that we don't know of. And then there are some variables that we know happen, but we just don't know how often or how much. So it gets more and more difficult. But it, I come back to my business again. And it's obviously I'm going to try and sell my the business of explant analysis. For sure. When you examine the implants that have been in the body, that's the ultimate test. That's reality. So what you see, the wear scars there, the location of the wear, the quantity of the wear, you know, um, specific characteristics of the distribution of the wear, does that actually match what you see on your simulators? Mm -hmm. Because I've had, I've shown engineers implants, explants that have been in the body and I, and I show them these patterns of wear and they go, well, that can't be because we didn't see it on the simulators. And it's like, no, 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 you've got to reverse your way of thinking here. Yeah. The simulators aren't working because they're not matching what you're seeing on the real specimens. Do you see what I mean? So you're coming at it from a clinician point of view, but then you have the engineers coming from the other direction. And, and it, or the, the real success here will be when, you know, every, there's joined up thinking. And, and just look at, the, look at the implants that have been tested in real life, link them back do it on a big, big scale so the data bases are huge and have more communication between the engineers, between the doctors, between the pathologists. Oh, that is that is so, and we always normally come to this conclusion, we need several different people with different backgrounds, different any everything just to come together to make the solutions that we are trying to bring to a success. So yeah, we need that, that. And then what you're saying is fantastic. It is not so much at the beginning. At the beginning, you can predict whatever you want, but it's still a prediction. And you have right now the evidence of what had happened to that material inside a body. And then when it came out, what is telling us? So absolutely. Very interesting, David. We came out to, it, it always goes so fast. We are almost at the end of the time. I thank you very much for your time, for your passion, for doing this. It is absolutely amazing. Any last message for the audience? <laughs> uh, I would, I mean, one thing I would say is, uh, I guess, 
there's a few things actually. So I would say uh, the study of implants not only informs implant technology, but it also actually gives you insights into just how the human body reacts to foreign bo foreign bodies, to autoimmune conditions, to viruses, to bacteria. You know, it all links in. And the other thing I would say is, uh, you know, if you don't know, you go and find someone who does know and don't restrict yourself to your own specialty. That's the worst thing that you can do. So I always figured, you know, if you're talking materials, uh, get out of medicine, go and talk to some materials expert. Um, and, and generally the world's becoming more and more specific as knowledge becomes more and more specific. So a materials expert won't necessarily be the expert that you want. You've got to maybe go a bit even more specific than that, haven't you? But then you've got to then realize that they're in one world and it's all about trying to apply cross knowledge to the the, the sort of the the, the um, question that you're trying to answer I guess but never be uh, always assume you don't know nearly as much as the next person and just keep asking questions and irritate people that's right one of the previous panelists she said I, at the beginning, I always was ashamed to ask why. Now I am proud of asking why all the time. Yeah. Well, David, thank you so much for uh, giving us this time. Um, my message to the audience, like I said before, if you know someone that is in this domain, please send this link to them. Uh, I think it's extremely valuable information that we have shared here. We have the tools. We have the company, we have the knowledge, we need to just use it. And um, yeah, it is It is something that we keep repeating as well. Thank you so much for being with us and um, we'll talk to you on the next opportunity, Dave. And then to the audience, we'll see you in the next two weeks. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye.